Special Draft Sharks Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. The recent DS Invitational featured 60 of the sharpest fantasy football drafters in the world competing in a super flex tight end premium best ball tournament. We split the group up into five 12-team leagues, so every drafter is trying to first beat a group of peers in a common size setup, but there's also a $2,000 top prize for the grand champion. Overall, the format and the drafting field left a lot of room for varying strategies and in-draft adjustments. Now that we've completed the five drafts, Jared Smola, Adam Krautwurst, and I wanted to go back and talk to some of the competitors with the most interesting builds. You'll hear from the 2019 champion of the Football Guys Championship. You'll hear a breakdown of the Zero RB method. You'll get an intro into applying game theory to your drafts. And you'll even hear how a psychology grad approaches fantasy drafting. Whether you play Superflex or not, big tournaments or just local leagues, you should be able to learn something from these interviews. So let's jump right in. We're here with Mike Beers. He's a co-owner and VP of NFL Data and Analytics at Rotoviz, a best ball guru, a lover of charts. And Mike, your Twitter page suggests that you are a father of three, just like Adam and I, right? Yes, I am. I got twin boys and then another one on top of that. Before we get into any football stuff, would you rate it impossible or just near impossible to actually accomplish anything amid socially distanced parenting? Yeah, near impossible, especially when school was going on. You know, the uh, the distance learning situation, it's going to start up again in just a month. It's uh, it's just too much. <laughs> I, I agree. We'll see how this goes. Jared's just about to get into that whole world. So we only just give him horror stories at this point. <laughs> Jared, you want to hit him up with the first question? So Mike was the zero running back guy in these draft sharks, invitational drafts. Um, didn't take his first running back until round 11. Kept us on the stream much longer than we wanted to be because we sort of pledged <laughs> to, to not get off for the night until M- Mike took his first running back. So I guess, first of all, did you plan on going zero running back in this draft? And if so, why? Did you think that was the optimal you know, route to take? Yes, I didn't plan on going with it specifically, but I had a hunch that it was going to happen just given where I was um, in terms of the draft order and the type of draft that it was. You know, the big thing for me was one, you had the tight end premium scoring, you had the super flex position, and then we're starting three wide receivers with another flex in a PPR league. It just really increases the value of those wide receivers for me. So I knew that unless there were guys that I really liked who happened to fall to me, I was probably going to be skipping running back more often than not. I didn't think I would be waiting until, what was it, the 12th round to get my first one. Uh, it, you know, There were a couple of guys I just missed out on and a couple of close calls. But it was really the structure of the league that, um, you know, that had me leaning that way going in. Mike, a quick question for you. How uh, how intimidated were you drafting in between Chad Schrader and Dwayne McFarland? Did that play at all into your into your strategy? You know, uh, the whole the whole room is just I mean, the, it was full of stud drafters. You know, it, so yeah. I was trying not to think about it. To be honest, I was actually uh, in a FFPC main event league with Schroeder last year. And uh, he dominated the regular season. And I was just like, ah, this is my luck. Like, I, yeah, okay, I'm stuck with the best fantasy football player in the world in my league. Though I know he's in a bunch of them, so it happens to a lot of people. But, you know, what I'm most proud of is I beat him in the semifinals. Um, Beautiful. So <laughs> I can claim that at least. Uh, I'm sure his team uh, still went on and, 
you know, did well in the next round. But yeah, it, it was it was interesting. I mean, you know that guys are just not going to fall in a room like this. You know, the, the ones that you think are your clever picks. The one in particular where Schroeder really got me was um, uh, LaVisca Chenault. I, I was really bummed about that one. That was when I was, you know, finally drafting running backs, but I was going to pause for one round just to get LaVisca and, and it didn't happen by one pick. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of draft where I was annoyed that you took Jakeem Grant when I was about to take him. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like everyone's either super pro, zero running back, super anti, zero running back. Are you on either side of that fight, Mike, or are you sort of somewhere in between? I'm definitely a zero RB sympathizer. I mean, you know, as a Rotoviz owner and... um, I got to wave the flag and, and I understand how it works, you know, um, which I think, you know, a lot of people who are against it, they do understand it, but a whole lot of people who are against it don't really understand what you're trying to do or why you're trying to do it. They see it as more of a gimmick. And so I'm happy to do it whenever it looks like the right move. But, um, you know, I mentioned, uh, pros versus Joe's to you guys, you know, I took, I think three running backs in the first five rounds in that league. And because it made sense, just the way it played out, you know, it was a different format, different players fell to me that I wasn't expecting. So I just adjusted. And that's how I approach every draft. I just think of zero RB as, you know, one of the tools in in my toolbox. So for anybody who might be listening to this, who might not know, or maybe even they think they know and they don't really, right. Can you give us like a quick bullet point version of what it does mean to to do zero RB, to draft a zero RB roster or to play it out for the season? I mean, the big thing is you aren't taking running backs early on in your draft. I mean, they sort of people typically define it as the first five rounds. That's not a strict definition. Um, obviously, you don't have to go to 12 rounds like I did in, in this draft. But the idea is um, capitalizing on the concept of anti-fragility. Running backs are both they tend to be more injury prone than other positions. And they also tend to have very clear replacements you know, if something does happen to them. So, you know, the the backup running back usually takes the lion's share of the work, whereas if a wide receiver goes down, it's spread across, you know, a handful of guys typically. And so the idea with zero running back is you load up on the higher scoring players at the other positions where you're starting more, particularly wide receiver, but also tight end. In leagues, ideally where you're starting more wide receivers than running backs, uh, which was the case in our draft here, and if you go down, um, you know, every draft board, if you just compare, here's the running back, here's the wide receiver I'm choosing between, almost exclusively outside of like the first six picks, the wide receiver is probably going to score more points in a PPR league. So if you have to start a lot of those wide receivers, you have multiple flex positions, you're just building a stronger starting lineup that way. Obviously, you're leaving a big hole at running back, but it's not that big if you're only starting two of these guys, if you only have to start two of these guys. And then what you do after that is you collect all of these later running backs that will benefit from the fragility of the earlier running backs, right? So as unexpected things happen or as projections turn out to be completely wrong, say Josh Jacobs just isn't going to be involved in the passing game at all this year, and it's all going to go to Lynn Bowden, you know, that would be a surprise to a lot of people. That would really hurt Josh Jacobs owners. And it would really help Lynn Bowden owners and or, you know, an injury. And so you are benefiting from chaos, from the unexpected uh, in a zero RB draft. And that, that's really the idea. You know, if you have invested all this capital into a running back, you're behind at those wide receiver positions. And when those unexpected things happen, you're not as well positioned to benefit. Fortunately, though, Josh Jacobs just told us this week he's going to catch 60 balls <laughs> this year. So we don't have to worry about that particular. <laughs> okay, so Mike, when you do go zero running back, 
in a given draft, what are you looking for when you're targeting those running backs in the middle and late rounds? Are you looking for the guys who catch passes? Are you looking for the pure handcuffs? Yeah, it's a combination. You know, I try not to start out with the pure handcuffs, though they're definitely a part of the strategy. I'm really looking for guys who are maybe in a committee backfield. Uh, they may, They usually have passing down work already sort of in our base case scenario. So they're going to score some points in a PPR league. They might be able to, you know, if you have a whole bunch of them, like I ended up with in this draft, they'll cobble together some good scores, even in the base case scenario, right? In the, in the scenario where Jacobs is catching passes, where running backs aren't injured at the beginning of the year. And because I've created such an advantage at the other positions, I'm sort of staying afloat, competitive with the top teams, even with nothing happening that's unexpected. So I want to have some of those guys who are going to score points either way. It doesn't have to be a lot of points, but some points every week I'm going to fill my starting lineup. And then it's just all path to opportunity. You know, so it is a lot of handcuffs. It is a lot of backup guys who maybe I think are talented enough to take the starting job or would immediately benefit tremendously from an injury to the starter. And if you put together a combination of those players, you have you are good enough when you know in the steady state and you can really benefit in the chaotic state later in the season. And then sometimes that chaos comes even earlier than expected. You get Antonio Gibson as RB52. <laughs> Darius Geis proves to everybody that he's a garbage human being, and all of a sudden you've got this super value. How exciting is it to have Antonio Gibson in that spot You know, now that he's got even more opportunity ahead of him? Yeah, that that was big for my roster for sure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really feeling a lot better about my team after that happened. But, you know, it's still Gibson's no sure thing, even with guys gone. You know, uh, they have Adrian Peterson, they have Peyton Barber for early down work. Bryce Love is a sleeper uh, people like. So, you know, I'm not taking any real victory laps yet, but certainly that's the kind of thing you're looking for. And he was a guy that uh, basically a wide receiver uh, listed as a running back. I know that he's going to catch some passes in this offense, and he's just getting more opportunity with the guy in front of him going down. So it really... That worked out nicely. And that's, I mean, this is why he's uh, the kind of guy I was targeting. Mike, did you feel that um, the format really tailored to being able to go zero RB with the, you know, the tight end premium, the super flex, the having to start three wide receivers? Um, did you feel like that? Because I, I thought watching these drafts play out, I thought that it's certainly tailored towards guys who like to go zero RB. Yeah, it really looked like it was set up uh, well for it. I mean, I, you know, I said I thought I wasn't sure, but I thought it would probably end up going that way. And that is how it played out. And one of the things about the Superflex and the tight end premium setup was I knew early on that I didn't want to be feeling like I needed another tight end or another quarterback in the second half of the draft. Uh, it was important to me to have that lockdown. So I didn't want to be one of the teams taking – three tight ends in the last five rounds trying to cobble together, you know, second string tight ends, because those guys just, I mean, there's some of them have upside, they have a path, but they're really just not going to score points each week. Mm -hmm. I want to be taking some of these upside running backs who may not score points most weeks, but have that tremendous upside. Or I want to take wide receivers who are going to score points, you know, may, uh, you know, a big week here or there, the kind of uh, boom bust guys. It's harder to find producers at quarterback and tight end, especially with a sharp group that late in the draft. So it was really important to me to lock down those positions. I had three quarterbacks by the end of the eighth round. I had, I was done with tight end in the 11th round and uh, I could just shift my focus entirely to running back and the wide receivers I liked in certain spots. All right. Last question for me, Kenny Galladay, 
I've sort of been calling him overvalued all offseason. I think a lot of people disagree with me. I guess you're one of them. You made him the seventh wide receiver off the board in our draft. Can you just talk about Kenny Galladay and why you're that high on him versus some of the other receivers going in that area? Yeah, so I don't totally disagree with you in that I do feel like I was kind of taking the first guy in the next tier, which is not a thing I love to do. I mean, I do like Kenny Galladay a little bit more than, say, DJ Moore, Amari Cooper, who I got in the next round, Allen Robinson. But I see them as a, a Juju went a little bit later. Those guys are all in a similar tier, and he's just at the front of it. But the thing that you know drove me to pick him in particular was, well, for one, I think he's just very good. Like I think he's a stud receiver. I think with Matthew Stafford back, He's going to have a great year. Uh, you know, he had a very good year last year without Stafford for a lot of the time. But also, he's the kind of guy that can get those huge games, uh, multi-touchdown games, deep catches that really stand out for a best ball team, particularly a very deep best ball team, which, you know, we had 25 rounds in this draft. I ended up with, uh, you know, I think it was in the double digits in the number of receivers that I drafted. So... I would love to have a lopsided distribution from Kenny Galladay where he has, you know, five 40 point weeks this year and some duds like that would be perfect. Especially when I came back around, you know, the next round, I got Amari Cooper who I expect to do the same kind of thing. And then I'm filling in all the gaps with the guys later. So that's really what nudged him ahead of like, say DJ Moore for me. I really like DJ Moore. He's one of my favorite receivers. And he was the one I was considering versus Galladay. And he, I think he went in the next pick or the next two picks. Uh, I would have been thrilled if he came back around. But, you know, I, I like the, that alpha, big play, uh, lots of touchdown potential for these early wide receivers. Did you factor in at all where Matthew Stafford has been going in ADP and maybe how, not easy, but how likely it was that you would be able to stack him with Galladay in a couple rounds later, which you ended up being able to do? Yeah, it wasn't a big factor for me. I think at that point in the draft, it was too early for me to be thinking about that, really. When it comes to stacking, because this is a multi-league sort of tournament format, I definitely wanted to have at least one stack, but I'm not planning it within the first three, four, five picks. I I think I'm just trying to get the best players at that point. And then, you know, uh, when it came around to the time uh, where I did take Matthew Stafford, it helped that he was toward the top of my list anyway, but the fact that I had Galladay made it an easier pick. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Mike. Thanks for taking part in the draft, and thanks for letting us inside your mindset as you put this team together. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on, I, and I, I was really excited to be a part of it. Like I said, this the competition was really tough. I felt almost, uh, you know, well, definitely felt out of place in this group, so hopefully I can put up a good showing. <laughs> Don't worry. I think you belong. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate right, it. Take care, Mike. Yep, take care. With us now is Mike Oliva, and by his own admission, he is a volume best ball player. He also sports college degrees in business, economics, and psychology, teaches doctoral students, quote, how to do research. Mike, do you really think it's fair to bring that kind of background into this arena? Don't don't you have something more important that you could be doing than beating us in fantasy football? Technically, yes, but uh, (laughs) nothing I'd rather be doing. Uh, fantasy football is is the perfect fit for me given uh, a stats heavy quantitative background so yeah i said during the stream it's not fair that you understand markets and values and why the rest of us are making (laughs) the decisions that we're making yeah the psychology angle actually plays heavily in drafts and actually when we get into some of the stuff we plan on talking about uh i actually did use kind of 
a little bit of psychology game theory uh, when it came to the draft. I have actually been curious about that. I'll be, I'll be interested to hear what you have to say as we go through. Yeah, I don't even know what quantitative means, so I'm going to have to look that up. <laughs> He's like, what do you say about potatoes? <laughs> so first off, the differentiator, I think, versus other teams is that you started with both tight ends, the two studs at the beginning of the draft, Travis Kelsey, George Kittle. Did you plan going in to start with Kelsey and Kittle? Did you hope that they would be available to you? And, you know, whether you meant to or whether you planned to or not, why did you start with those two guys? It was actually my backup plan. Uh, my original plan was to go QBQB like Evan did out of the 12 spot when he went with Dak and Deshaun. I was thinking that based on the people in front of me that Lamar would fall to me at seven. And then I was hoping to get a Kyler Murray or some other top tier QB coming back at two six. But Todd took Lamar, which shocked me because Todd doesn't often take a first round QB. I'm in a lot of leagues with him. Uh, for those that don't know who I'm referring to, it's Todd Burroughs. And I'm in a lot of leagues with him. I know him really well. We've been friends for years. And it was not the move I expected him to make. I really thought he would go with a running back there. So when he went Lamar, that immediately wiped QB QB off because I'm not spending one seven on Dak or Deshaun. So I grabbed Kelsey and the same overall theory of QB QB and tight end tight end holds. You essentially finish off one complete spot on your roster. You go QB QB you don't have to worry about QB again, and you can grab all that falling value of running backs and wide receivers while everyone's scrambling for QBs. But it also works for tight ends. So I didn't have to worry about that eventual tight end run in the seventh or eighth uh, when everyone starts grabbing Jared Cook, Tyler Higby, and, and all those guys. I could just grab and grab values as they drop. So that's ultimately why I went tight end, tight end. So drafting Kelsey in the first made you more likely to take Kittle in the second? Oh, absolutely. Who would have had to drop to you in the second for you not to take Kittle? Like if, like if Kyler Murray or Russell Wilson had dropped you in the second, would you have taken them or were you set on Kittle over, over those guys after taking Kelsey? After taking Kelsey, I was set on Kittle. After taking yeah. Kelsey, the entire idea was to go to tight end. So basically to answer your question – there is no one that could have dropped to me in the second round after taking Kelsey where I wouldn't have gone Kittle. There's literally no one. Just because tight end, tight end gives you that flexibility to just get all the value that falls because you don't have to worry about a position. You really only have three positions to fill for the next 23 rounds. Yeah, I like that strategy, Mike. And I don't know how much uh, football guys championship you play for FFPC or main event, but I know that the Kelsey Kittle stack doesn't have like a – or tight end, tight end to start your draft doesn't have a high win rate. But I think it being a smaller tournament and it being super flex and having to start three receivers kind of changes it up a bit. I definitely think it's a it's a neat way to start, to start the draft for sure. Yeah, I know the win rate isn't as high as some other starts. But I do like the flexibility. I, I it, Let me put it to you this way. I, I would never do that in redraft. But in best ball, I think it makes a lot of sense because you really – you don't have to worry about the position. If you look at the rest of the way I drafted, I think I have like nine or ten running backs mm -hmm. just because one of them or two of them are bound to have a good week 
in that any given week when you just have that many of them. Sure. Now, if somebody had drafted George Kittle where he should be going in every FFPC draft and taken him off the board before he got to you, would that have gotten under your skin and removed that psychological edge that you have over the rest of us? Yeah, I mean, it would have thrown me. It uh-huh. definitely would have thrown me. That was my fear because going Kelsey there instead of, you know, Dalvin Cook or someone else it was basically me committing to try to pull that off. Mm-hmm. And had someone taken Kittle, then now what do I have? You know, now I mean, I can go best player available, but I'm not one to sink first round capital into a tight end unless it's part of a strategy. You know, to have taken Kelsey and then okay, I'm going to build a a team from scratch now, it would have definitely thrown me off because it was not at all what I was planning on doing. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because I think, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think that might have been the latest we saw Kittle go in the the competition. Yeah, I mean, I think it was easier to do because it was the first night. There was no ADP set. Everyone was kind of flying, flying. Uh, You know, Evan took Dak, which I I love, took Deshaun probably a little early. You know, I think everyone kind of had their own strategy and went with it. And it was just, you know, forget ADP. I'm just going to do this the way I feel like I'm going to do it. I mean, everyone in that draft room of the 12 of us, everyone really knows their stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not just guppies following an ADP chart being like, oh, I'm supposed to say this guy. You know, everyone knows their stuff. They can build a strategy. Evan had a strategy. I had a strategy. You know, Todd had a strategy. And and for the most part, I feel like everyone kind of stuck to what they wanted to do. Yeah, those are the fun things about these drafts. The experience in all the draft rooms and the, the format that it leaves more room for all these differing strategies. We know that your first two picks were the two tight ends. Le'Veon Bell in round four was the only running back that you took among your first nine picks. Was that a plan going in or was that an adjustment that you made as you watched the draft play out? It was definitely an adjustment. So when I got to round three, my thinking was, okay, I've got two tight ends. What I want to do ideally is take two strong running backs and then build wide receivers and and QBs out from there. In the third round, there wasn't a running back that really jumped out at me that I liked. And Mike Evans, who was just sitting there, who's someone I, I, I think is just chronically underrated for what he does. Now he's getting Brady, Gronk, he's got Godwin next to him. There's a lot of weapons for an aerial attack there, which means the defenses aren't going to be able to key on him as maybe they have in years past. And I think, you know, if you look at a big, fast, red zone target type guy, someone who can break big plays kind of a guy, you look at what Brady did with Moss. The one time he had like a big, fast receiver and Moss had a pretty good year with him. I think 23 touchdowns. (laughs) So I really am high on Evans. So once I took Evans at that point, there is a large running back drop off. I thought Le'Veon Bell was the last of the, in my mind, tier two RB two running backs that were certain. So I took him and then I figured that my RB two spot was just going to be whoever had a spiked week out of whichever eight running backs I took that all have a shot at touches or a receiving role or something like that. 
So from Bell on, was it kind of a, a round by round? Okay, I don't like the running backs here. I'm going to go quarterback. I'm going to go wide receiver. Or was there a point somewhere in there where you were like, all right, I'm going to just forget about running backs for a while unless some particular guy sparkles for me at some turn and I'll look at him, you know, round 10 or round nine, whatever it was. Yeah, that's kind of what it was. After Le'Veon Bell, I knew I wanted to to grab a couple wide receivers I liked. I also, being that it's super flex, wanted three starting QBs, which I got with Breeze, Cousins, and Rivers. So I wanted three guys who, who fit the format pretty well. Uh, I think Rivers, as my third QB, is somebody who's also going really undervalued. Um, Indy's got a lot of weapons, a lot, a great offensive line. He dumps it off to the running back a lot. They've got Naeem Hines, who can do a great job uh, as a receiving back. So the Rivers going QB like 27 or whatever he's going for a guy who throws 4,000 yards a year, 27 TDs a year. Doesn't really make sense. So I was happy to grab him. I saw you stacked uh, Rivers with with Hilton. To kind of circle back to Mike Evans, because I'm definitely picking up what you're putting down on that. Did you think at all about, I saw you took Breeze over Brady. Did you consider stacking uh, Evans with, with Brady there at all? I did. I just, I, I think Breeze has, I don't want to say more upside. I just, I just feel better about his season this year than Brady. You know, as I said, I'm very high on the Tampa offense, but father time's undefeated. And I don't know with Brady, you know, the last five games of last year, he didn't really look good. Granted, he had no weapons, but he didn't really look good. And my concern is maybe he just doesn't have the the arm strength anymore. So I, I, I thought Breeze was a safer pick, but it would have been nice to stack. Brady with Evans and then Rivers with Hilton. But for me, I just think Breeze has a little bit better year than Brady. I don't know. Maybe Brady by the end of the season was just like a a beaten down father and he just needed a little rest, needed an off season with his supermodel wife, needed some extra avocado toast. (laughs) Now he's all rejuvenated. It's very possible. I mean, it's very possible. I mean, I, I think Brady has one of the largest windows this year in terms of ceiling to floor. I I really think that he could be a top three QB. And at the same time, I wouldn't be shocked if he wasn't even top 12. So there's just a lot of variance. And I don't see that variance with Breeze. There's also the foreshadowing of going ahead and moving down to Florida. I mean, that's usually something you do at the end of life. So, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's already in the right place to retire. So... (laughs) So you touched on a bit, but what kind of psychological concepts or how, how does that play in for you in general, even outside this draft? How does, how does that play in for your draft strategies or how you adjust or anything along those lines? Uh, it really works in two, on two levels. Like one, if it's someone I've drafted with before, you know, everyone kind of has tendencies. Most people stick to them. Um, you know, really good players adjust to the draft and kind of take the draft as it comes. But a lot of more novice players will have this idea of, well, I'm going to start every draft with two running backs or something like that. So, you know, if you're drafting behind them and the player you want is a running is a wide receiver or a quarterback, they're not going to take them. Or you see people who take one QB early and then don't touch the QB spot for, you know, 10 rounds. 
So if you have an idea of what people have done in the past, they tend to stick to it. So you can kind of figure out what they're going to pick, who they like, things like that. So it really does kind of help you. In terms of this draft, basically the, the way I just broke it down was, you know, previous experience with who the 11 were and just kind of trying to figure out, trying to deduce what their strategy was. You know, what is he building? What is he going to do? That kind of a thing. Do you ever find yourself overthinking it at all? All the time. <laughs> all the time. I mean, because human behavior, while somewhat predictable, also has a unpredictable component. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can think as much as you want. Well, Evan grabbed two quarterbacks at one, two. He's not going to touch the QB spot again for, you know, the predictable future. And then in the fifth round, he'll take someone, you know, he didn't, but who knows, you know, maybe in the fifth Mm -hmm. round, he sees Brady falling too far and he's like, that would make a great third quarterback, you know, and and then that throws you off because mentally you're already like, oh, this is, you know, this is kind of what I have him projected to do in my mind. Mm -hmm. So trying to predict what everyone around you is going to do can somewhat sometimes cause you to overthink and, and it backfires. So Mike, I see that you took, um, C.D. Lamb in the 12th is your wide receiver 43, or as the wide receiver 43. I know Matt and I both took him as well. Why uh, did Jared make a mistake in that uh, not take C.D. Lamb? <laughs> I mean, look, I'm a Cowboy fan, and honestly, I, I just think that he's going to be your the third receiver. He's got Cooper. He's got Gallup. You've got Jarwin at tight end, who's still kind of a question mark. Elliott's getting more passes out of the backfield. But I think there's definitely a lot of targets to go around. I think that really the target pecking order is going to be in some form, Amari, Gallup, Lamb, Elliott, and then Jarwin. I think it's a concentrated offense. It's not one of these offenses with like nine different playmakers. So, you know, if I can get 100 targets from Dak Prescott, I'm happy. I mean, and and the kid's fast. We saw him in college. I think he's an immediate contributor. And I like him a lot in a best ball format because I think there are going to be weeks where he's an absolute dud. But there are going to be weeks he blows up. And if I can get four weeks where he just has big games, that's all I really want in the 12th round. Mm-hmm. And Jared and I have said on the podcast when we've talked about the Cowboys that we expect their passing volume to stay up a little bit this year versus where it was a couple years ago. Would you expect something in the you know, 60, 61% range in terms of passing share for them this season? Absolutely. I think that's kind of the way that offense goes. I, I don't think they try to be a running team and just run Zeke and Pollard. 45 times a game. Dak is a really good quarterback. They have a good offensive line and they've got great receivers. Mm. And I think they're going to use that. Yeah, I think the best ball is the perfect spot to take him. I think they're going to get in games where there's slot cornerbacks that just can't keep up with him. And I haven't projected for 160 plus targets, Mike. So I don't know wow. if that makes you feel good or whatever. <laughs> that makes me feel fantastic. That's right. He's getting every <laughs> every target that doesn't go to the other two. But yeah, I think best ball is the, the, the perfect spot for him. He's going to have, have some monster games for you. Yeah, I mean, I, people. a lot of people make the mistake of drafting a best ball team the same way they draft a redraft team. And I see it all the time, and it's probably the biggest mistake you can make. Mm-hmm. Uh, redraft, you you just you don't like variance. You want to plug someone in at their spot, have them put up twenty points a game, and that's what you're looking for. 
best ball, you want to embrace the variance. You know, Lamb is a perfect example of that. I, I would never start him as a wide receiver three on a redraft team because I have no idea what's going to happen. But in best ball, throwing him in the wide receiver pool, I am more than happy to do that because he's absolutely going to have weeks where he goes for like eight, 135 and three touchdowns. Like mm. that's going to happen. It's just not, it's not going to happen every week. It might only happen two or three times, but those two or three times are all you need in best ball to return value in a 12th round. Well, Mike, I have to disagree. I think the biggest mistake would be listening to Adam's. Uh, <laughs> it was definitely no mistake having you on to discuss your draft sharks invitational team. Thanks again for taking part in the draft. And thanks for coming on to talk to us about it and to try to school us a little bit on psychology. I'm looking forward to overthinking now instead of heading into drafts like I'm Keanu Reeves. Yeah, overthinking really, really works. It, it, it's a great strategy. I highly recommend it. <laughs> but thank you guys for having me. Thank you for having me as part of the event. And thank you for having me today. It was a joy. Absolutely, man. Take care. Take care. Joining us now is Abib Agbatoba. He won last year's Football Guys Championship. So Adam and I are sitting on chairs as we talk about this, but Abib is, is sitting on a sack of cash, actually. <laughs> He's also the director of the Texas Allergy and Sinus Center in Houston. Dr. Abib, which is more challenging, the Superflex format in fantasy football or the human olfactory system? <laughs> uh, can I defer that answer to? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That's actually a question we ask all our guests. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to go with the uh, olfactory system. That's <laughs> right. So we wanted to talk to you specifically about your start to this Draft Sharks Invitational because you were one of the few drafters that started your team with two quarterbacks. Did you plan on starting with a pair of quarterbacks once you found out that you were picking sixth or was it a matter of adjusting to what the board gave you uh, a little bit of both i kind of had some thought or idea that you know drafting at that position would probably not leave me with one of the uh, top four top five running backs in this format i was didn't have plans on taking uh, michael thomas that high and i think you know there's two aspects about it it being super flex uh but then it also being a best ball and so once I saw Kamara go at that point, I figured, you know what, let me lock up a uh, potential top three and at the very least, hopefully the top five uh, QB and see what falls back to me. To my surprise, uh, Deshaun Watson, who I have you know, ranked pretty highly, came back to me in the second round. And so I looked around and saw what was on the board and felt like that was going to give me the best value and best bang for my buck. It's all about scoring points. So to me, that seemed like it was going to give me the maximum output. So it sounds like in round one, you were likely going quarterback, but then in round two, it was more a matter of what was on the board that got to you. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, my first ever league and like, which is the league for me, you know, that, uh, you know, joined when I was in college is actually a super flex league. Obviously it's not best ball, but it's super flex. And so one thing I kind of learned in that league was that it's really a good idea to try to figure out, you know, the flow of and pockets where QBs tend to go. Mm -hmm. And so a good way of doing that is by going back and looking historically at the drafts from previous years. And you can kind of get a good sense. And what I found was that there was very little difference, very little deviation from how many QBs went in the first three rounds versus the next five rounds versus the next seven rounds. And I really didn't have that luxury here. I guess I could have gone back and looked at some of the other drafts and maybe prepared, prepared a little bit better. But I think the best ball factor for me was a big one uh, because when we kind of look at QBs from a week to week, basis i think we 
sometimes don't realize how much variance there is. Mm-hmm. You know, you may have a top end QB like a Deshaun Watson or a Dak Prescott that may put up a 10, you know, to 15 point week where other weeks, you know, they put up 25 to 30 points. And so I really wanted to maximize that super flex position. I thought getting a good top five QB would do that. And then also backing that up uh, with a, uh, you know, a potential high upside uh, QB three to fill in those gaps where either it's a bye week or it's a, a low scoring week. Uh, we all kind of run into those decisions. You know, we, I think a lot of us like Daniel Jones and some of these, you know, potential high end, potential value QBs, but you're looking at Daniel Jones versus the Pittsburgh Steelers. None of us are going to play Daniel Jones in the DFS mm-hmm. tournament that week, likely, right? So mm-hmm. that's sort of kind of my thought is to really maximize the QB and super flex, the highest scoring positions uh, in this league, and then try to fill out the board everywhere, you know, everywhere else. And so it being best ball, I think, helps us out in that, in that, in that regards because we can load up and hopefully try and fill in the gaps when, you know, maybe I meet, you know, my re- my weak RB2 isn't scoring as high, you know, hopefully, you know, the third, fourth, fifth QB or running back that I've drafted can, can fill in those weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I saw you took Joe Burrow there too, so kind of the same thing with him. Hopefully you'll get a spike weeks and then the weeks he plays the Ravens twice and the Steelers twice. Exactly. You exactly. won't be using him. <laughs> exactly. And I thought it was interesting to look at the particular players that you got in those first two rounds. At six, were you hoping that it was going to be either Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes? Because in several other drafts, we did have one of those guys get to that point. Absolutely. That was, that was for me, actually, that was best case scenario, aside from, you know, McCaffrey falling. Uh, I thought getting Lamar or getting Mahomes was going to be best case scenario. Obviously, it didn't happen. And so, but, you know, I'm pretty high on, uh, you know, on uh, Dak. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, with the uh, new weapons, the uh, you know them keeping some continuity with the uh, OC, but obviously you know having a new head coach comes in, I think uh, really helps them out. You know, play at a they played at a very high speed and high pace last year, and so I, I just think you know it's a contract year uh, for him. Uh, and again, <laughs> exa- again, exactly. And so to me, he was the ideal first pick because he has a safe floor, but also that tremendous upside. And then. Watson for me is actually uh, my number four ranked QB. Uh, I know that's kind of I think maybe a uh, you know contrarian uh, to many people who have Murray over him, but I was happy to see him there all back there in the second round. I liked seeing Watson there. Watson versus Murray was actually one that Jared and I argued when we were setting the projections for uh, draft sharks because I prefer Watson to Murray too. But overall, Kyler is pretty easily ahead of Deshaun Watson. To me, it's like. Deshaun Watson is already what we hope Kyler Murray is going to be this year. So exactly. Can Kyler Murray outscore him? Absolutely. Yeah. But if I'm picking right there, I'm going to go with the, the known entity. And I think the format as well, or in terms of the scoring setup, 25 yards per one point and then four, you know, four points for uh, passing TD. I think odds are likely, at least in my mind, that uh, Deshaun Watson is probably going to put up potentially more rushing TDs and to me, potentially more rushing yards. So, I think he kind of wins in that respect. And honestly, I mean, you know, one reason why I'm so high on Deshaun Watson, I kind of see it almost as it sounds, this is going to sound, you know, blasphemous, but I see it as addition by subtraction. I'm a Houston Texans fan, obviously. And you watch these games and D-Hop, I love him. He's great. He's absolutely great. But he's such a a demanding target. You know, he commands the football. And I think for a young quarterback, that can be tough to not go to, to your superstar. So, you know, in a new offseason, you know, another year in the system, 
and new weapons that are more spread out, I think he can sort of kind of now pick and choose who's open. And we have burners now, you know, Mm -hmm. as good as D-Hop is, he's not really a build stretcher. So I think defenses are really going to have to figure out how are we going to cover Cooks and Fuller on the outside. And I think that's going to even open up even more rushing lanes for uh, Deshaun Watson. Uh, And then obviously adding uh, David Johnson and we have Duke Johnson. So we have pass catchers. So they ever decide to get them involved. So I think there's a lot of potential upside. And one thing that I think also isn't really talked about is, you know, Bill O'Brien had a lot of hats last year. You know, he wore the GM hat. He wore the head coaching hat. He wore the OC hat. And he was just doing so much. And I think you could see it in the game plan. You know, we were very vanilla, especially in the first, second quarter. And then when we would get down, we would just sort of kind of let Deshaun Watson, you know, be Deshaun Watson. And I, I can't remember who you know brought it up. I think it was a beat writer from Houston, but apparently that you know was kind of felt in the locker room that things were kind of rushed from a game planning standpoint. So now you get Tim Kelly in, you know, who can kind of take over the play calling and head coaching or the uh, uh, offensive coaching roles. And apparently him and uh, Sean Watson had uh, some really good uh, combos over the uh, off season and, and developed a really good relationship. So I just I don't know. I, it may be the homer in me, but I think the Sean I think the sky's the limit. Hey, when it's close to, there's room for picking guys that you want to root for, too. Exactly, exactly. That, that doesn't a, hurt. <laughs> as a Bills fan, I hate Deshaun Watson. So watching him <laughs> flex in after, oh, uh, it's gross. But that was a good example, though. You mean that playoff game, yep. to me, that showed the difference between, you know, uh, a uh, coaching staff that came in very well prepared. They had scripted plays, you know, the first three drives and ran them beautifully. I mean, that team just looked well coached. Yep. Versus the Houston Texans, who had talent. You know, but just kind of had to figure out a way. And we just, you know, Deshaun Watson just put us on his back, you know, and and won that game. That was sort of kind of an interesting game for me to watch and kind of realize how how important coaching is. But, you know, how how nice it is to have a a player like Deshaun Watson who can carry you. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, you like the pair of Texas quarterbacks that you started out with. Did you feel any differently about the two QB start after seeing once you saw the whole draft play out, but especially when you saw in round three, you could have had a shot at Russell Wilson or Matt Ryan. Those guys went at the end of round three. Uh, end of round four, Tom Brady and Drew Brees. So each of those two turns could have been one of those two quarterbacks. Was there any point in there where you're like, oh, I could have waited and gotten that guy and taken something else earlier? Or were you like, no, this is playing out the way I wanted it to? I'm playing for first, not for second. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, say, I say that because I, you know, the idea was that I want to get two QBs who could finish potentially in the top five QBs. Mm-hmm. And I love Matt Ryan. I draft him all the time whenever I don't take, uh, you know, one of the higher end uh, QBs. You know, the idea in, in any other draft, you know, I'm drafting for value. So Watson falls to the eighth in an FFBC or something like that. then that's when I want to grab him and maybe mm-hmm. even late seventh round. And, you know, super flex league. I wanted to lock in those spots because those are going to get us the most points. And again, going back to four points for passing TD. Guys like Brady and Ryan and, you know, Roethlisberger, whoever you kind of want to throw in that potential mix, to me didn't really seem that appeasing because I thought that the tier between, you know, that second tier versus the the next tier was pretty substantial and pretty significant. And I was just, you know, praying that I was going to be able to make up ground at, you know, I'm very happy with my wide receivers, I think, but I think the running back is where I'm going to have to make up ground and hope that uh, some of the uh, my later picks uh, pan out. At tight end, Hayden Hurst in the ninth round, tight end 12 in this particular draft. That might have been the latest that we saw Hayden Hurst go in these drafts, and certainly later than he tends to go in, in ADP. 
were you happy to land Hayden Hurst at that point, or was it just a matter of value match for you? I was ecstatic. <laughs> uh, I believe it. I believe it. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm very high on uh, Hayden Hurst. But, I mean, I, again, I approached tight end in kind of the same way I'd, I would have approached QB in, a, in any other league, which is I want the guy who's going to give me value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I tend to try to avoid that pocket, you know, the Ingrams, Henrys, Higbees, and I like Higby. Uh, you know, I'm kind of in between. You know, I can see him yep. being average, and I can see him, you know, being great. I don't, you know, I don't get the dichotomy, but, but I try to like, you know, try to get whatever value is there. And so seeing him uh, fall to me was huge. And I understand, you know, I think that, you know, the sort of kind of cons that are against him or uh, people who sort of kind of are anti Hayden Hurst often bring up that, you know, he hasn't done it before, or he was behind Mark Andrews and this and that. And, you know, kind of when I evaluate a player, you know, I want to take in everything. But to me, I always start off with the offensive system, okay? Who's the OC? What has he done in the past? It's not so much that he's going to go in and replace Austin Hooper. It's that his offensive coordinator has a system that's in place that favors the tight end. And I kind of have a theory about, you know, the whole Falcon setup. To me, they're going to just pass, 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 pass. And I felt like I feel like they're going to – not really run Gurley out into the flats. I feel like they're going to keep him in the block because I think that's going to preserve his legs to some degree. And I feel like, you know, we watched, if you actually watched Gurley play last year, yeah, I know the offensive line wasn't as great uh, as it was in years past, but he just, to me, he lacked complete burst. And I saw, I, I, did, I thought it was most apparent on the, on the dump offs and on the screen passes, which is why I think they completely went away from him in the passing game. And so I think for Atlanta to bring him in for that role, I just I don't see it happening. To kind of bring that into the Hayden Hurst conversation, Hayden Hurst isn't a blocking tight end. Mm-hmm. So you're not you're not trading a second round pick for a tight end that can't block and not, you know, have him go out and run routes. And then you add in Matt Ryan saying that one of the most athletic tight ends that he's played with, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know, to me, like, you know, tight ends break out late anyway, but like this is a, a perfect opportunity. I'm willing to take that risk and seventh round value to me, I just thought was you know, even if I get 80% of what Hooper did last year, I'd be more than happy with that. I love Hurst. I love Hurst for all the reasons you said, and I love him for all the reasons Austin Hooper was good last year and for all the reasons we liked Hooper last year. You know, it's mm-hmm. the old coordinator loves that, loves to use the tight end. They're a passing offense. I could argue that that Hurst is a better player than Austin Hooper. You know what I mean? Hooper. I think he's more athletic. Yeah, exactly. Hooper hadn't, hadn't broke out yet, and now – Hurst is, yeah, I think he's more athletic. They traded a second round pick for him. Like I just, you know, I, I think he should go around the, the Higby area, tight end six, tight end seven. Hooper finished top three, I think, as a tight end last year. I could see him finishing to top three, really. I mean, he's just, the offense loves him, and I think he's, he's going to be a great pick. And I think, you know, yeah. in these football guys, these main events, you're not going to really steal him. But if, you know, in yeah. these home leagues that we're in, we're, you know, we're going to get this guy yeah. as like the tight end 15, you know, so. And that was one, yeah, that was one of the advantages of drafting early is that, you know, I get have teams where I was able to get him in the eighth and ninth round, which is probably why I haven't drafted him as much now. Yeah. Trying to kind of diversify, diversify the team. And yep. I think, you know, the cutoff for me, you know, not just with hers, but if you, you know, if you like Higby a lot, the cutoff for me is sort of kind of, okay, who's going after him? Right. You know, I'm fine taking him before like an AJ Green and before a Jarvis Landry, but I'm probably not. I'm definitely not fine taking him before like a Marquise Brown. And sure. depending on kind of where you have some of these wide receivers ranked, will depend on kind of where that flows. So mm-hmm. I care more about that as opposed to like you know which round I'm taking him in. Now you didn't end up uh, stacking any pass catchers with your quarterbacks with any of your three top quarterbacks here. Is that 
normally something that you try to do in a best ball uh, draft, or was that just not? Is that just not generally part of your strategy? You know, I went to medical school, uh, and so when it comes to math, I'm <laughs> I'm not the guy. You know, so I'm not a statistician. I'm not a mathematician. You know, I, I appreciate you know all the content that people put out. You know, with regards to metrics and stats and things like that. I just don't get stacking. Like, you know, when I kind of break it down in my mind, I get it in like you know DFS, but I don't get it in redraft. I don't get it in season long. I don't get it in you know in best ball for the most part. Like, I just want the player who's going to score the most points. So when I see teams who sort of kind of reach, you know, to okay, I drafted Julio and then. Calvin Ridley fell to the fourth round. So now I got to get Matt Ryan to complete the stack. Well, if I feel like there's a QB that's going to score more overall points than Matt Ryan, then I'm just going to draft that QB that's going to score over, overall more points. And then especially when it kind of comes down to like stacking multiple wide receivers or a wide receiver and a tight end, like, you know, the KC stack, you know, the one that's very common people talk about in terms of getting a Kelsey, a Hill, and then getting Mahomes. Well, you know, what's the likelihood that Kelsey FFPC, you know, championship for, you know, that three week, you know, during the championship uh, three week uh, run, what's the likelihood that both Hill and Kelsey all go off three weeks in a row? To me, mm -hmm. the odds of that happening just seem a lot tougher than if I just went Devontae Adams, Kelsey, you know, and then maybe Mahomes or whoever. Mm -hmm. You know, I just feel like I'm more likely to get, you know, three good weeks from Adams and, and three good weeks from Kelsey than I am from Hill and Mahomes. So I, you know, I don't avoid stacking. If it works out, great. Mm -hmm. You know, the one time that I think it's advantageous is when you're stacking an offense that is very undervalued. Yes. So, you know, there are a couple of offenses like the Pittsburgh offense, you know, you drafted Connor and I have a lot of Connor this year. I'm just crossing my fingers and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I may be burning money, you know, given his health status, but I, I love Connor. So points per game, you know, if you can give me 12 games, I'm more than happy with that. But Pittsburgh offense, you know, has a, you know, I think they're all undervalued, you know, you know, granted if they stay healthy, but Juju potential wide receiver one going into the fourth round at times, Connor potential RB one, Roethlisberger goes super late, you know, Deontay Johnson is kind of a hot name, but you know, before you were able to get him earlier, Rams offense to me is another one that's undervalued. I feel like, you know, we look at the Rams offense last year and think that they were so bad. And really, based on the numbers, they weren't that bad. So that's like the low end, you know, and their offensive line went through a lot of shuffling. There were a lot of young players. So you get continuity with that group. Hopefully they're healthier. Jared Goff again in another system. Sean McVay kind of realizing that I can't just go out and, you know, run 11 personnel the entire game, but kind of mixing it up. I think that offense has a lot of potential too. So Akers is a rookie value. And obviously I drafted him. Uh, Woods and Cup, you know, go fairly late. And Goff is, you know, sometimes undrafted, but is super late. And then obviously Higby uh, and Everett, who goes uh, undrafted sometimes too. So, you know, I'll stack an offense like that uh, just because I can get value at multiple, multiple positions. Yeah, to, I'm the same way. I mean, stacking to me is about the value. It's you can get, you know, you can get the Jets pass catchers, for example. You can get them all round nine or later. Darnold's, they're going to be losing all year. They're going to be throwing. They're going to be behind. He's got to throw for four thousand yards. Who's catching all those touchdowns and all those yards? So, you know, there's a lot of offenses you can get for, for cheap that people, you know, don't really uh, don't yeah. really think about. So that's a good point. And the nice thing about that too is, uh, especially if it's uh, you know a deep roster, deep bench league, is that you don't waste picks by going Crowder and Perryman or going Perryman and Mims or whoever you know you yep. want to pick, and then even picking up a Herndon. 
And then you just drop, you know, whoever after the first two or three weeks based on who succeeded. But then you kind of lock in that potential top uh, pass target. So, exactly. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely like that approach. Another one we talked about on the podcast this week was the Raiders offense, which is available. Oh, yeah. Derek Carr is yeah. 28. We've got Henry Ruggs, Tyrell Williams, both going outside the top 50 at wide receiver. So you're yep. paying nothing to get them. And they really have a strong start to their schedule yeah. here for, for passing upside as well. The division they play in, their O-line's amazing. And you, and we've all heard Derek Carr. He's tired of being you – know, I don't want to curse on this podcast. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, he it wasn't too long ago before we were kind of pegging him as a breakout. You know, he had that one good year. So, you know, who knows? But, yeah, I, I, I agree. There are a lot of sneaky offenses out there. And, you know, KC, you know, again, as an example – they were a great stack that year because nobody was drafting Mahomes in the second and third round. That's People right. People weren't drafting Tyreek Hill in the first and second round. So, you know, there's a reason why they were so stackable. Same thing with Baltimore last year. You know, I had tons of Lamar Jackson, had a lot of Mark Ingram because they were just so cheap, you know. And Lamar Jackson was always – I made a point to always make him my second QB, you know, as sort of kind of a, you know, a fail-safe. You know, you draft, I don't know, whoever. So you get the safe floor with one QB, and then you get the you get that upside QB, and that's kind of our approach last year, and it, you know, luckily it worked out. Yes, yeah, so Lamar Jackson was the key for your championship team last year. Actually, on that team, it was actually Kenyon Drake, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know if you've actually seen that roster, but I actually spotted the entire field a kicker position because I had Brett Maher and me. Kind of, you know, I'm, I've only been really been doing FFEC for about a, uh, two years now, and so I only had one kicker, and he got cut. So, like, for three weeks, I wasn't accruing any points for my kicker position. But wow. I think, you know, one, I think one thing that goes underestimated throughout the whole kind of tournament and uh, championship or the uh, NFL season is, is start and sit decisions. So that wow. roster, you know, I had Michael Thomas. I had Allen Robinson. I also drafted Terry McLaurin. I had John Brown, who was very good. I had DJ Chark. I had Austin Eckler, Derek Henry, Lamar. And I want to say my tight end, I think, was uh, Austin Hooper. But every week was a very tough start-sit decision. And I had Drake. And I just kind of hung on to Drake. And mm-hmm. luckily, he got traded. You know, we all need some luck to win out of that large field of tournament. Sure. I mean, I'd, I'd be the first person to admit I got to be, you know, a, a lucky SOB. <laughs> but I think what set me apart was that I can't remember what week it was, but it was the week that Drake just went completely off. And mm-hmm. no one started him. People who were in the tournament, no one started him. And I just remember, I think it was playing the Cleveland Browns, and I think they were having some defensive line issues. Their team was like in complete array, and I just had noticed like their last few games, they were giving up tons of rushing yards. And the Cardinals were going from this sort of kind of pass-happy offense to really kind of finding balance and success, you know, with their run game. And so I made a tough decision. That I, kept, I think I set like DJ Chark or someone, and I played Drake, mm-hmm. and he just went off. And then obviously he just became a, a fixture in my lineup for the rest of the two weeks. And I think getting that, you know, whatever 40 points it was, you know, when most people sat him that week, I think kind of uh, set me, set me apart. So. I mean, fixture in your lineup, he should be a Jersey on your wall at this point. That's right. <laughs> I, know, I know. I know. Oddly enough, I don't have much strength this year. I, still, I like him, but he scares me. He scares me. It's I, that offense in general. Way say, I already, I already milked this. Yeah, exactly. That's right. exactly. What's, what's the likelihood? What's the likelihood? So, <laughs> But I got tons of Edmonds though, so I don't know. <laughs> All right, I'll be yeah. curious to see how that plays out. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, Dr. Abib Agbatoba, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it was nice to hear about your strategy and nice to get your take on all of this stuff. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I mean, you guys are great. You guys put on a great tournament and a great format. Uh, I thought it was very unique, very different. And I think I've talked to a couple of my friends in other leagues, and I think we're going to, you know, in this sort of kind of COVID times, I think this may be actually one of the best formats to sort of kind of adopt for people who are worried about doing a full redraft season. So awesome. Cool. Well, thanks again for playing and uh, good luck to you this season. I hope you finish close behind me in the, in the tournament. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Joining us now is Mark Garcia from the first of the draft sharks invitational drafts. He is the COO of the FF world series. He is a contributor to one week a high volume FFPC player, and he is high low FF on Twitter. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, gents. It's my pleasure to come chat. We were particularly interested in your draft because you were one of the latest QB drafters in the whole tournament. Did you plan heading in to wait on a quarterback? And once you did so, were you happy with how it turned out? Yes. Uh, so I went in with the intent of waiting on quarterback because super, one of the biggest mistakes I think in Superflex to begin with is overvaluing the quarterback position. Yes, you want to get two to three, especially for best ball. You're shooting for probably three starting quarterbacks uh, to fill those two flex spots. But quarterback is still the flattest scoring position aside from tight end outside the top two or three at the position. So what I like to do in Superflex is either grab one of those top guys, which I'm typically not doing because I don't like to overpay for the position, or just wait and try and get three starters that can uh, combine for two usable scores. We did see you take Ben Roethlisberger and Sam Darnold as your first two quarterbacks. You started your first one came in round eight. I think we only had one drafter the rest of the way that waited any longer than that. Um, were you happy with Roethlisberger and Sam Darnold as your top two QBs? Yeah, so there in the eighth, I was looking at Big Ben, uh, Minshew, and Teddy B, and I was playing the game, trying to see if two of those three would fall to me in the eighth and the ninth, and lost. So I uh, was happy to get Big Ben. Uh, best ball. People forget, you know, two years ago, Big Ben's home road splits, his spike week potential at home. Uh, so being best ball, I went with Big Ben for the, you know, weekly upside for the spike weeks. And I was hoping one of those other two would have fallen. But I was happy with Darnold, uh, purely a volume play in the ninth there. Uh, again, just hope for that uh, spike week potential with the volume that he should see this year. I'm sure it didn't hurt that you already had Juju rostered in round four. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that kind of was uh, the, the tiebreaker for me. Uh, there in the eighth uh, was getting Juju in the fourth and, and getting that kind of mini stack there. Do you normally like to stack in, in, in basketball? So that's a whole theory discussion that we can have yeah. and that I've, I've had on Twitter a ton. A stack is three from the same team. So if you're looking to stack, what you're doing by a stack is you're looking to increase your variance. Best ball, obviously you want that spike week potential. Increasing your variance makes it more likely that when something happens right for you, that extra happens right for you. It also makes it the flip side of that coin is when things go wrong, you're going to have more of your roster go wrong as well. So it's leveraging variance in your favor. So I typically do like to do that in best ball as well as DFS because less has to go right for you to actually hit for a ceiling play, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think I think the, the Big Ben Juju stack is... 
one of my favorites because I think we all know Ben comes with plenty of risk at his age coming off the album injury. But if he hits, Juju is going to hit. And I think, you know, both those picks will end up being good. And, and if Ben doesn't hit, then your Juju pick busts and you, you, know, you probably weren't going to win anyways. Exactly. So in the fourth there, it's all about managing the risk and going for that Juju pick. I, I kind of wanted to bring back with Ben because like you said, Juju's kind of proven that he can't succeed without a healthy Ben. So if Ben is healthy, then I expect Juju to, to succeed. So. So if a stack is a three-player stack, what have been some of your favorites, and are you willing to tell us, or is it a secret? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll shoot. Minshew, uh, LaVisca, and DJ Chark, probably my favorite cost-considered full stack mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that other than DJ, who is probably going uh, right around where he should be in best ball, uh, typically the late fifth, early sixth round. Other than that, really, you can get typically uh, Minshew and DJ or, and uh, and lavisca pretty late so i like that stack for the upside and again it's a volume stack yeah and i mean i think you always have to factor the the prices in and it's got to the guys have to be affordable for you to be able to effectively combine three players from the same team yeah exactly that's the second person we've had on that's uh talked about lavisca chanel as a target too that's right oh man i love my adp sounds like the jags love him too so yeah how do you feel about joe burrow aj green tyler boyd along those lines Cost considered, it's a it's a viable stack, but I don't see the same upside, and that's more so a weekly volume thing. I think that Mixon is going to be, you know, a little bit more heavily involved on the ground, and they're going to try and take a little bit off, or try to take a little bit off their rookie quarterback's plate. And their defense and their offensive line are both improving, although slightly, they're both improving on an upward trajectory from last year. Adam, why don't you go ahead and hit him with the tight end question that is obviously yours and nobody else. <laughs> what was the best tight end value in the draft, and why was it your pick of Tyler Higby in the seventh round? <laughs> so that is uh, that is definitely a polarizing pick right there. I know there's going to be a lot of people out there that love it and a lot of people that hate it. But uh, being best ball format in the seventh round at tight end seven, I thought Higby was a smash play. I'm not targeting him specifically uh, in that range, tight end six, tight end seven range where he's going in redraft. Uh, because there are so many different unknowns with the situation. We don't know. We know he's talented, but we don't know what, what the situation is going to be like for him. And it is highly likely, in my opinion, to not be the same situation that he had last year. So I think they're going to run a lot of 12 personnel sets, how that's going to affect their wide receivers and the tight ends. We don't know yet, but uh, being best ball, I think his spike week potential in that range is huge. Yeah, and and it was kind of a, a joking question because he's pretty much going at the tight end seven spot. But I just um, I like the I'm obviously a big a big Higby fan there, and I think the um, you know the, the targets are, are going to be pretty condensed between like four people. I think between the two tight ends and maybe uh, Woods and and Cup, um, at least in my my opinion, if they're going to run twelve personnel, so I'm I'm willing to bet on on, on Higby for sure. Yeah, and one thing that I think uh, not a lot of people are really talking about or realizing is I. I don't know what, how the running back usage is going to look going forward. We know that typically they have the uh, running backs more heavily involved in the passing game, but I don't know if that really fits the personnel that they have on the roster. So it could be a, a situation where both of those tight ends uh, exceed ADP. Yeah, and I think Jared uh, did some research on that earlier, and they showed – I'm pretty sure the Rams were one of the – throwing the least of the running backs the, la- the last year, I think, and the tight ends have just been going up and up and up. Stephon Diggs, a wide receiver 22, um, do you like him particularly over the other wide receivers that went around him in this draft and maybe in ADP, or is that just a, this time I wanted him? 
So that was uh, 100% a game theory play, and I, I leveraged a little bit more game theory later on in the draft, targeting the secondary, tertiary, fourth, fifth in the depth chart of the San Francisco running backs. Um, the reason for that is this draft occurred prior to the opt-out deadline, and I know that Smokey Brown and I know that Tevin Coleman have sickle cell trait, so I thought that they were at a high risk of sitting out this season. So taking with that kind of in mind, wide receiver 22, Stefan Diggs in that range, were Smokey to hold out, that would have been drafting him at his floor. So in a contest like this, we're trying to beat 59 other people. I went for uh, went for the upside there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And I've heard people talk about um, game theory, stuff like that. Do you? How do you feel about um, you know, Zeke Elliott, him already testing positive for it? Do you think that that raises his kind of ADP for you? Like, would you take him higher than you normally would? I don't. And the reason is because I think people are simply saying Zeke has had COVID. He's immune. It's good to go. Like he's locked in for the entire year. Well, Mm -hmm. there's also five guys that block for him that are susceptible to getting COVID. And there's also uh, in Zeke's specific case, we know his entire value, although he's a solid NFL running back, a lot of his value is drawn from the known volume that we can project for him from week to week. So what can change or alter that is pretty much his offensive line. So there's five bodies blocking in front of him that are still susceptible to COVID. And I don't think a lot of people are thinking in that manner uh, as they're just, they see that he's had COVID and they move him a spot up their, their rankings. Sure. What's the latest on that, by the way, guys, do we know that having it at least, protects you for any certain amount of time or are people still learning on that i think it's completely yeah, I'm not, entirely i'm not going to give any i'm not going to give any medical insight here <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's my thought that is still up in the air I, I i certainly can't say it's not true but i don't know if i'm ready to say well he's had it so i'm not worried about zeke getting that this season yep on the code front mark i saw you tweet about chase daniel it was back before the opt-out deadline i believe do you still think that there's any upside in a deep super flex league for Chase Daniel behind Matthew Stafford with COVID in mind? I do, yeah. And that was uh, my pick was retroactive to kind of that thinking and that thought process. It was basically we know Stafford, uh, his personal life, he has a lot going on. So his wife is still currently battling a brain tumor. We know it's um, benign, but we know his obviously he's got a lot on his plate. We know he's got a toddler at home and a wife that kind of uh, has some health issues going on. So, I, again, I was thinking, the thinking there, a little game theory leverage, was that he might have been at higher risk, uh, and that's Stafford, of sitting out this year. So taking the uh, the quarterback to, you know, in the, I forget what it was, 24th, something like that round late in that draft. Now, for somebody who might not know what you mean by using game theory in these spots, what, is, what do you mean when you say this is a game theory pick, or that's, that was my motivation? Yeah, so actually, a uh, little shout out here. Game, I'm I'm doing a, a full game theory breakdown for one week season uh, this year. Uh, it's going to be a course that I'm offering over there. And game theory is from a fantasy perspective is really had its origin in DFS, and I have a very heavy DFS background as well as poker and kind of uh, the stock market. Kind of my game theory understanding and application is all rooted in those different forums. And game theory is simply making the most optimal decisions in any given situation that can arise. So 
it's a, a deeper level of thinking and understanding and analyzing the possible outcomes and determining what is uh, a likeliest outcome versus a you know 80% solution, which is kind of where the bulk of fantasy players and analysts operate is in that 80% solution range. So it's kind of leveraging the unknowns as well as uh, trying to think about things that people necessarily might not be thinking about. Now, I noticed that at, toward the end of the draft, you grabbed some guys that I didn't see go in other drafts or maybe might have gone in a couple of them, Quintez Cephas, uh, Jermichael Hasty. Are those players that fit into that line of thinking that you talk about? Yeah, and that's leveraging the unknowns of COVID. So really, there's, there's never been an NFL offseason like this, so we don't know how COVID's going to affect in-season injuries, soft tissue injuries. We see we have a little bit of a sneak peek with the Major League Baseball with the amount of pitchers that are hitting the injured list. Um, so we know that guys with soft tissue history might be a little bit more risk of, of injury or re-injury during the season. And we know that COVID is going to affect the NFL season. We don't know how much and we don't know for who, but it's kind of leveraging the unknown Quintess Cephas with the opt-outs that the Detroit wide receivers have had this year and the basically the the pure pristine route runner that he is, I think he could step in either inside or outside should one of those Detroit wide receivers go down uh, and operate as either a wide receiver two or wide, wide receiver three off the bat. Interesting. We certainly have injury histories on Danny Amendola and Marvin Jones, even you know aside from the, the COVID factor. Yeah, so- exactly. Before we let you go, why don't you tell us what the FF World Series is? Yeah, so it's a, a fantasy football World Series. Uh, we are launching this year, and uh, it's going to be on the top level, a contest provider. And we're looking to innovate and change kind of a stagnant market. So we have contest providers popping up all over that are kind of trying to wash, rinse, repeat the same model. You know, you got uh, three or four different best ball offerings that are popping up this year as well as a couple of new uh, redraft sites. So we're trying to kind of change the game a little bit and shift the focus from the game and the formats to the players themselves. So we're going to, one of the, you know, groundbreaking things that we're launching this year is the quarters platform, which is you draft a team in one of the four major categories of PPR, Superflex, best ball or auction. uh, And you keep draft that team for four weeks. So, it's kind of a, a merger between DFS and uh, season-long draft theory as well as what it takes going into a, a successful player. So trying to merge those two scenes. Our marquee contest this year is the uh, FFWS Invitational. It's going to be a, a $10,000 buy-in rake-free contest. And one of the, one of the behind-the-scenes things that we're trying to accomplish through this medium is really shift the focus from the game to the players themselves. So we're going to be working hard through our platform and through our medium uh, to seek sponsorships, celebritize our players, similar to what uh, the World Series of Poker did with poker in the early 21st century. So, yeah, we definitely appreciate um, you know different ways of doing things. I mean, I think that's one of the things we liked about the Invitational was it being you know um, super flex and tight end premium and all these different things. Because like you said. Fantasy football can get stale, especially for high high volume players. You know, it's the same FFPC football guys board we're looking at every single day. I was I was looking at that today, seeing how the quarters process and how it, you know, it's good. You can do auction, you can do all different kinds of stuff. So I think it's a very interesting way of doing it, having kind of four short seasons there. Yeah, we're pretty stoked about it, and uh, we're 
we launched the website and uh, our contest lobby is going to go live uh, here in about 27 days. So stay tuned. Awesome. Nice. We'll be watching. Mark Garcia, thanks very much for joining us and talking about your draft. And uh, good luck this season, the DS Invitational. I hope you finish right behind me. <laughs> there you go. Appreciate it, gents. Take care, Mark. All right. We'll see you. That'll do it for the special episode of the Draft Sharks podcast. Click the links in the podcast post to check out the full draft boards for all of the DS Invitational drafts. You can also head to DraftSharks.com, our Twitter page, YouTube, or Facebook to find our live streams from the first half of each draft. And of course, you can find all of our league-winning content now on DraftSharks.com. For Jared Smola, Adam Krautwurst, and all of our DS Invitational competitors, I'm Matt Schaaf saying thanks so much for swimming with us.